Hey, welcome back to the Barrel Proof Baseball Podcast. Today's episode was one I was able to film a while back. Haven't been able to release it due to my real work. Um, and so finally getting this sent out. Uh, I'm really excited. This is one of my favorite conversations that I've had, I think. Um, I, I don't I don't know that I've been introduced to a brand that is readily available um, that I've enjoyed as much as this one. So uh, today I'm talking with Brian Tracy. Brian is the president of Sagamore Spirit out of Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I'd never had Sagamore Spirit. I'd seen it on the shelf, never tried it out. Uh, I, got, I got a bottle of their rye sent to me and I thought it was delicious. Uh, for my call, I had that and then I went and picked up the double oak from, from Sagamore Spirit and it was just amazing. Um, possibly one of my, maybe my new favorite bottle. Um, after our talk, we actually had a had another group call with Brian, uh, with our group, and he sent out some samples. We tried the cask strength. We tried the tequila finish. I mean, these are just incredible bottles. I don't think you'll go wrong. Um, I, I would definitely recommend it. I picked up the Manhattan finish uh, based on Brian's recommendation, and, and this is just amazing as well. Uh, the cask strength. I mean, these are just they're incredible bottles. Um, a little disappointed that I had not tried these sooner. So uh, do yourself a favor, pick up some Sagamore Spirit. You're definitely not going to regret it. It is money well spent. It's very good whiskey. Um, once you watch this or listen to it or whatever means you are uh, hearing or seeing this by, uh, I think you're going to agree that you're going to be very supportive of Sagamore Spirits and Brian Tracy. Um, he's such a super cool, like down to earth guy. Uh, really enjoyed my conversation with him. Really enjoyed our follow-up call with him, with our group. Uh, it was just awesome. So um, check these out. I think you're going to enjoy it. Go pick up some Sagamore Spirit and uh, and leave me some messages. Let me know what you think about it. Uh, support the Barrel Proof Baseball Podcast. Check out the links below, whether you are listening on Apple, Spotify, Google, Podbean. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, check out the Patreon. Check out the amazon store check out uh what else i don't remember just click on links put your card in and send money yeah that's it shameful plug i'm not afraid to do it but uh that's it check this out let me know what you think check out sagamore spirit go grab a bottle you're gonna like it i promise i right. cheers All right, I'm joined here today with Brian Tracy from Sagamore Spirit. Brian, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having us. All right, so first and foremost, I'm going to tell you that I'm somewhat new to Rise. Uh, my my first experience with Rye was not uh, overly positive. I didn't love it, and and then I had some more, and I started to like them. So. I was excited to try this one out uh, and, and get one that I really like. And, and I'm, so I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of learn a little bit more about these. So, Yeah, you know, uh, we're looking forward to sharing more with you. And, you know, that's definitely not the first time I've heard that. Uh, uh, but I think, you know, I look forward to sharing a little bit about what makes Sagamore different and what really kind of what Maryland style rye is. Um, and because we do view it as potentially a little bit more approachable, but Love to get into some of that and what we do to kind of make our whiskeys taste different. And a lot of people are, can be surprised uh, compared to other ryes about how approachable it can be. 
Yeah, I agree. I was I was pumped last night when I tried this. I was like, all right, this this could uh, this could go for a lot of different people's palates, I believe. But um, can we start a little bit? Let's talk about yourself and kind of where were you before? I know you mentioned Flagstaff before we started, but what were you doing before you got in with Sagamore Spirit? And kind of give me a little bit about how you got into it as well. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's a question when people you know think that what what distillery were you working at before? Where did you come from? And and then when I tell them that. I was living in Flagstaff, Arizona, and I owned a backpacking and kayaking tour company in the Grand Canyon and the, in southern Utah and Yosemite. They kind of scratched their head. How, how did that happen? And had a little um, outdoor store up there and a ski rental shop. And uh, really what it came from is I knew um, what are the co-founders for, from back in the day, way back in the day. And and at the end of the day, they kind of looked at me and they had, they had this idea about starting a whiskey distillery for a long time because Maryland had this great history of distilling, yet no one in Maryland was really doing it. This Maryland, this idea of Maryland-style rye lived on for decades without anybody, a few people doing it, I mean, which was great, but no one in Maryland really doing it. And so they approached me, I think, really kind of from the entrepreneurial side, saying like, here's the vision, here's what we'd like to do, can you get this business off the ground? And uh, so I love that challenge. I love the taking something from concept to life. It's super exciting to see that happen. And of course, the people you meet along the way. And uh, the first thing I did is, is hire some really smart people who, who kind of knew what they were doing, getting <laughs> to distilling. And from there, you know, it for me, it's not too different than I, what I was doing before as far as starting a business. There's just certain basics that go with any business that you're starting. There's a lot more compliance with this one. And then for me, too, you know, hiking and backpacking in the Grand Canyon is providing a, a great hospitality and a great memory. And, and we provide, I think, a great hospitality experience when you visit our distillery. We have some of the best hospitality in the industry. And then I, hopefully you, you find a really great experience in the glass. Were you were you a whiskey fan before this? Was that your uh, your go to drink or were you into something else? I was, I had, I kind of rotated between three things. I, I like, and I still experiment a little bit, but you know, I like to always see what's happening out there, but I was whiskey, tequila, and beer mm-hmm. was kind of my, my, my three things, if you will. But for me, I, whiskey was kind of Jim Beam. And, and then when somebody introduced me to makers at one point, I was like, wow, this is really fancy. And I, and that opened up my eyes and was like, realized that was just like the tip of the iceberg on on how many great whiskeys are really out there and the curiosity grew as I got into this business. So what was like that moment for you? It always makes me kind of interested to, to hear when people have, you know, something that they're into, something that they're doing, and then they change ventures in their life or change their career path and go, okay, like, like my buddies have this idea and you decide like, I'm going to jump in, let's do this. Like, what is that moment like? And like, what led you to say, like, this sounds like something that could be, you know, a very good idea. Um, let's leave, you know, Flagstaff and what I'm doing and let's jump in. You know, I, I was very lucky living in Flagstaff is a great, great city, a great town. If you ever haven't visited, get out there and check it out. I mean, basically my office view was the Grand Canyon. So, I mean, it wasn't a bad, bad thing at all, but you know, I had kind of been doing that for almost 15 years and it was, it was doing well. And, but when this opportunity came along, I just couldn't say no. I didn't realize even though I grew up in Maryland, that we had such a history of distilling in Maryland, and that what an idea, the idea to bring that history, that legacy back to life and put Maryland back on the map was such an opportunity. And, you know, you go into it, yeah, you're a little bit nervous. It's a new venture. You're picking up the wife and the kids and 
moving across country and settling back in. And uh, But, you know, my family was still in Maryland, and my wife's family's from upstate New York, so it brought us closer back to family. And it just seemed like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I just couldn't say no to. Can you talk a little bit about that history of like rye whiskey in Maryland? Cause I know, I think people instinctually go to like Pennsylvania rye. Um, but it sounds like from what I've kind of looked into a little bit, there's a fairly deep history with Maryland rye. Yeah, no. And, and understandable for people to do that, you know, history in distilling goes back 158 years before Kentucky was really even a state. And, you know, in the 15, 1600s in Maryland, we we're distilling mostly rum at the time, hmm. but like a lot of things come along. Some taxes and tariffs got hit on the sugars and molasses, and so they didn't want to pay those taxes and tariffs on the sugars and molasses. And so we had a tremendous amount of immigration into the Baltimore area. We're right on the Inner Harbor, so it's the second largest site for immigration next to Ellis Island. We had a lot of people come from Ireland, Scotland, Germany, Poland, who knew about rye grain and knew how to distill grain-based type products. And so instead of paying those taxes and tariffs, in the early 1700s, they just started switching over to rye. Um, whiskey and you know it flourished from there we have some tensions with the British a little something called the you know the Revolutionary War we come out of that we're 54 million dollars in debt and they decide they're going to start taxing um, all the whiskey distilleries on a high level and of course the rumblings of that happened and that's when you start hearing about the whiskey rebellion coming out of the 1780s into the 1790s and that's when families like Marion Jacob Beam and Basil Hayden actually picked up and left Maryland moved to places that weren't developed yet that would eventually be called Kentucky. Uh, but luckily, you know, Whiskey Rebellion ends, taxes get reduced, flourish, uh, distilling flourishes in this country. We get to 1910, Maryland has 44 distilleries, all licensed, uh, 21 in downtown Baltimore, all making rye whiskey. We keep making it through prohibition. It's one of the reasons Maryland's called the Free State. And then into the early 30s, they start paying farmers to stop growing rye, subsidizing corn getting ready for World War II and ethanol needs. And over half of the distilleries in this country switched to ethanol production to support um, World War II. And eventually, distilling really never made much of a comeback in Maryland. And the last distillery closed its doors in 1982, sold that name off to Heaven Hill, and that's Pikesville Rye. And so, again, we saw, you know, here's Kentucky distilleries that even wanted to buy up the Maryland brand names. And Maryland Rye Whiskey was considered really superior whiskey so much that you know the identity and the brand lived on without actually anybody in maryland doing it but uh you know the original american whiskey is rye whiskey and the birthplace is in the mid-atlantic between virginia maryland and pennsylvania i think it's cool the you know you have all the folklore of of whiskey in, in kentucky and everything like that especially but you know like you mentioned basil hayden's and i'm not a basil hayden's fan myself but i know it's a high rye whiskey kind of in homage to to basil hayden because of the you know the area that he came from so i think those stories how they kind of get interconnected is really cool it's kind of a fun part of whiskey that uh, i think is uh the, the stories are a lot of fun to pay attention to yeah we often call rye uh, bourbon's older brother <laughs> <laughs> that's great all right so so you make the decision to jump in like we got the history behind everything's rolling what's the process like like how do you get this thing going um i'm sure there's a ton of you know, red tape you've got to take care of and, and permitting and all that stuff. But what, what is that like getting this company started? Yeah, there is a It is one of the most, it is probably the most regulated industry in the country. And understandably, I mean, obviously sure. alcohol needs to be monitored very closely. So 
that was that was a new undertaking for me. The amount of complexity when it came to compliance and legal. Uh, so the, there's three things that you basically I charged at, and that was one product development. What is it going to be? What's it going to be like? And then go to market strategy, um, and then you have brand. And so those are the three most important things as far as getting the business off the ground. And then you also have this other undertaking, which was a huge undertaking, was building a 66,000 square foot distillery. Um, so, and then you really start that process by saying, what do you want to make and how much do you want to make? And that kind of determines the equipment you need, how much you need and kind of the size of your distillery. So we have a beautiful distillery in downtown Baltimore located right on the waterfront. Uh, we have a restaurant there called Rye Street Tavern. We have um, one building's a visitor center with um, tasting rooms, the cocktail bar. You know, we run tours. You go into operations and learn about all the dis distilling and, and bottling. We have processing and bottling, and then distillation, where we have a uh, six thousand gallon cooker, nine sixty five hundred gallon fermenters, an eight thousand gallon beer well, a forty foot column still um, that runs off of two. 350 gallon doublers for triple distillation. We also have a 250 gallon postal batch system for pilot systems and R&D. So you're not only getting a business out the door, but you're actually building the facility for production, um, which was something very new to me. I'm not an engineer by any means. And so we're, I was very lucky to team up with a guy by the name of Larry Ebersole, who was the master distiller and worked at Seagram's and, and MGP for over 40 years and I call him the godfather of rye whiskey he's still more rye whiskey than anybody in the world and he came, he came in and he was a real mentor to me and it was just wonderful to work with alongside of such a talented human being and learn as much as you can I mean we have over two miles of process piping alone oh. and then you know you deal with the fact that you're dealing with a very combustible uh, product too you know uh, those, those vapors are very very dangerous you know and so Everything's explosion proof and EE rated, so it was it was wild undertaking. And, but we got the distillery; it's up and running, and it's beautiful, and got into market and so forth. Now, when did you guys actually start? I saw I think it was online April of seventeen. Was that when you guys actually got got going? Correct. We got the distillery open to the public in April of seventeen. Okay. So the, the backstory is, um, luckily with Larry's connection, we started contract distilling which isn't, you know, too different than what a lot of folks will do. It's kind of basically almost like renting time on someone's still. Um, and we did that with MGP where Larry had connections. And we said, why don't we start laying down whiskey now to a recipe that we want while we're building out our distillery. And then in 2016, we actually launched our product into the market. And in 2017, we opened up our distillery to the, the public. Um, and in the meantime, you know, we've transitioned out of MGP into 100% here in Maryland and in Baltimore for production. And so, but we knew it was a bad business plan. Say, let's let's spend four years building and designing a distillery, and then four or five years aging your product, and nine years later collect dollar one. No one can do that. Yeah, that's. I mean, I I can't understand how people could potentially like like you said, let's build this, let's wait four years, and then we'll start making money. Like that, you're in a good position in life already if you can uh, you can hold off that long. Yeah. So so, the, so so going to MGP, this always interests me. But do you take because this is this is two mash bills? Is that correct? Yeah. So do you go to MGP and say, 
Like these are the mash bills that we we're really looking at. Um, do they, is that something that they have that you guys kind of say, okay, we want these blended or um, like, do you go in saying specifically, this is what we're looking for? Like, how does that kind of process work um, in terms of actually picking out like the, the spirit that you're going to have in your bottles? Yeah. So we do, you're exactly right. We distilled two different mash bills and we were doing a lot of R and D and, you know, MGP, when it comes to rye, is kind of famous for their 95% rye, 5% mm-hmm. malted barley recipe that you, you see in a lot of the products. We, we like that. We like that mash bill. But Maryland was always known as a little bit sweeter, um, a little bit more floral, a little bit more approachable rye. So we wanted also something that would be a barely legal rye. So just like it is to be uh, straight bourbon in their mm-hmm. mash bill, you have to be at least 51% corn in your, in your mash bill to be a straight bourbon and a few other regulations. Uh, we have to be at least 51% rye to be a straight rye. So we do one that's also called a barely legal rye that we ask them to make. So 52% rye, 43% corn, 5% malted barley, and we'll age that separately. So both of those products get aged separately for about four to seven years, and then we blend those two together in every product we have. So you kind of get that spicy complexity that you might expect from the high rye mm-hmm. with this really nice balance um, and like fruity floralness from that low rye. So we, we approached them and I don't think if we didn't have Larry, I'm not so sure they would have taken the call. <laughs> so it was very just kind of one of those perks of having him in, in your corner because he had the connections. And they were kind enough to oblige by that. So we ran with two different mash bills. Um, and so... It was, it wasn't that complicated, but I think we also got lucky. So how now are you guys now, you said you're, you're making your own stuff now. Are you still, um, are you still using the MGP distillate that you guys had, had been selling before you switch? Like, have you switched over to, uh, like out in market using your own stuff or is that still to come? That is to come in the coming months. I was going to say, it's gotta be getting up there. (laughs) This is like. Yeah, our whiskey's, uh, you know, our whiskey's now over four years old. Um, and like straight rye is a blend of four to six year. And the the, um, the double oak is six and a half. And our cash drink's a blend of four to seven. So we're going to start putting in Maryland-made product into the bottle this year. And then it's, it's a little hard to know, but we think it'll be maybe 18 months or so as we blend through before it becomes 100% Maryland-made. Gotcha. Now there's a, is it, is there a, like a kind of that crossover in terms of them making the stuff at MGP with, you know, what, whatever grains they're using in terms of like a, uh, like geographically, um, is that something that you guys try to mimic or get the same grains that they're using so that you keep the consistency between what MGP was making to what you guys are putting out? Or is it, you know, potentially going to be kind of a different, uh, or even subtle differences in like flavor profiles because the grains are different? That's such a great question. Um, we started off using, we use the same yeast strands that they use. Um, we worked with the grain, same grain suppliers that they use. So really wanted to mimic, because we really love the product that we have, really mimic what they were doing and to try and transition to that. Now, the flora and fauna of aging in Maryland is a little different than Indiana. Um, their tanks are really old and have some, you know, historic, bacteria and things like that that we're never going to have in our system so there will be subtle differences hopefully people think to the the better if you will Um, and then you know we'll also eventually transition to some other products because we have started growing 
um, some working with local farmers as well. So not only do we still work with Brooks and, and, and consolidate grain uh, like we did with MGP, but we're now also doing kind of a shared value program with some of the local farmers here where you actually come to find out rye grain is one of the only uninsurable crops there is. And so getting folks in Maryland to grow rye for you, there was a lot of risk to that. So we said, why don't we buy the seed so you have no out-of-pocket expense? We won't hold you to a yield per acre. We'll just hold you to a quality standard. We'll buy silos so you don't have to invest in that. We'll just work together in a true partnership. And, you know, we've recently transitioned Sagamore Farm, which is where we get the spring water to proof our whiskeys to our farm, which used to be kind of famous for thoroughbred horse racing. But we've transitioned that to growing Ryan, 100% of our non-GMO corn, and then two other farms here in Maryland we work with. And the first year we grew 50,000 pounds. Second year about, about 150,000 pounds. Then we got to about 500,000 pounds. And last year we did over 700,000 pounds. And this year we think we'll do over a million pounds of, of Maryland-grown rye grain. Um, and then we're working with the University of Maryland Department of Ag on five different strands to really understand the different flavor notes and components you can get out of different strands. And so that's some products that can come down the road. In the meantime, we want to stay as consistent, consistent as possible, but some, some interesting things in the, in the, the pipeline for sure. And um, we're super excited about that. But, you know, we still mill over 3 million pounds of, of rye a year. Wow. It's incredible. I mean, when you start thinking about just that, like 3 million pounds is so much rye. Like, <laughs> it's absurd. And I, I think it's interesting, too, like when you start to look at like the big brands in Kentucky, you know, and I've talked to a number of craft distilleries and they say like Jim Beam spills more in a day than we put out in a year. You know, like it's just the, the total output of what's actually getting out there is just incredible when you start thinking about just sheer numbers and quantity i think it's it really is amazing um so i can understand like going from an mgp to making your own there's got to be that moment like kind of that that oh shit moment you know like this is this is our stuff now like this is on us yeah i you know this is this is a defining moment for us this year um we have to nail it as we begin to put our product into the bottle we're we're fairly confident, but we're not certainly gonna we're not gonna be arrogant about it. Like, but we're yeah. we're taking this incredibly serious. Um, this is this is it. You get to do this once, if you will. You know, and this is a big moment for us. And we're gonna ask people. You know, we'll always be very transparent. Um, and you gotta have thick skin and candor in this business too. You know, people tell you like it is, and that's cool. That's yeah. totally cool. We get that. So, um, but we're super excited. We're very proud of what we've built. We've had some very positive feedback some, from some very smart and experienced industry pallets. Yeah, that's got to be awesome. I mean, especially when you hear from some of those people that are enjoying the spirits that you're making. Uh, and not just what you're, I mean, again, it is a big deal because you, you're responsible for blending the spirits that are going into your bottles, but now it's your own stuff. I mean, to hear people that are into it, that's got to be pretty uh, pretty rewarding, I would imagine. It's, it's exciting. It definitely it puts a big smile on your face because... I've been at it now for eight years and you know, that's kind of how long it can take if you think about that journey. And, and that's a, that's a blink of an eye in the world of whiskey. I bet. You know, yeah. So, so tell, what, what is your, what is your role kind of on a day to day or, or just big picture, um, you know, big picture type of a theme? Like what is your role in the company? So, uh, by title, they, they, they say it's president. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like, again, we're small. 
I, I was there today rolling up hoses underneath the fermenters. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, if you, we'll, we'll play any role necessary. But overall, I really have to provide the direction and the strategy and make sure it's fairly clearly stated on what we're trying to accomplish and then provide the resources necessary for the team to accomplish that. So you, you have a, a finger in everything. You're working very closely with hospitality, operations, um, finance, and especially sales and marketing. So what is the, I don't think I've ever asked anybody this, but what is like the main, and this is gonna, might sound stupid, but like, what is the main, you know, objective? Is it making good whiskey to get it out to as many people as possible? Is it creating a good, you know, visitors experience when they come to Maryland um, or just overall, like, is that the theme of just creating a, a brand that identifies as, you know, good whiskey, good experience when you go visit, um, you know, what is it that you guys are going for? So I'll, I'll answer that with um, our mission statement is to inspire a global passion for Maryland rye whiskey. So right now, if you ask somebody what's Maryland rye whiskey, a lot of people just say, I guess whiskey made in Maryland. But, you know, to really kind of like kind of what, you know, we had it and, and Pennsylvania has it with Monongahela and Kentucky has it and Tennessee has it. And California has it for wine. Like it's our job to kind of get that back. And then, you know, our vision is really to establish Sagamore Spirit as a premier distiller. And we always say through through our people, and that can be our team, that can be our community here in Baltimore, and through our craft, and whether that's our actual whiskey or that's an experience you get in our hospitality center. And then, of course, um, uh, our, our, through our, our people, our craft uh, is really the most important thing that we have. Like, And, of course, our distiller. And mm -hmm. so anything that you come, may come and experience. So that's kind of how we approach it every day. That's what drives us. That's kind of our Northern light, if you will. I love it. I think it's, I think any, like you mentioned rolling up hoses, the president of the, you know, the, the brand of the company is rolling up hoses. And it's the whole idea of, you know, if you're too big for a small job, you're too small for a big job, like go out and, you know, like do what has to be done. I mean, it's, everybody has to uh, kind of chip in and get their stuff done. And it's the only thing that really matters. And, you know, the, the people that are there, whether it's consumers or people that are working there, I think that's what makes any company or brand successful. So I think that's really cool. The people are the most important and everybody matters and everybody brings value. For sure. And it's the collective, uh, like the collective, uh, what's, what's that? I forgot the word, but they just, the collective strength of everybody becomes better than, you know, the strength of the individuals. Yeah. Greater than, was it, uh, greater than the sum. Yes. Uh, okay, so you've mentioned a couple times the water. What is what is unique or different about the water that's coming out of the, your area? Yeah, so we have out on um, our, our farm was founded in 1925. But if you ever look at our bottle, you'll notice the embossing says 1909. And come to find out the entire farm was built on a shelf of limestone aquifers. And out in the middle of this field uh, on our farm is this little spring house. And on the outside is chiseled 1909. CAC, and that's Charles A. Councilman, who got a grant from the University of Maryland to study limestone aquifers and their effects on agriculture and livestock. And when you open up the door to this building, there's no floor. There's just limestone spring water coming up out of the earth. Oh. And we studied that spring for over three years, and it's some of the highest, highest grade quality water in the Mid-Atlantic region. And so, you know, after you age your whiskey four, five, six years, you really want to proof it with the best water you can get your hands on. And that limestone filtered spring water is really key because it's, it's so rich in calcium and so many interesting minerals 
that bring that kind of local terroir to it. And then, of course, it's iron-free because it just gets naturally filtered out. If you have iron in your water, your whiskey turns a lot of funky colors. Hmm. Interesting. So I, I don't I don't know if that's something that I think people would necessarily look at, like how important that is. Um, you know, if you're running tap water out of Arizona in there, it's probably not going to come out very good. But yeah, yeah, I assume that good water definitely helps helps improve the quality of the whiskey. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, after all, right? What's whiskey meaning Gaelic, right? Water. That's yeah. uh, just like water of life. Yeah, water of life, right? It's just water of life, and it's just one of these things. Like that is that is the base ingredient, really. At the end of the day, is the water, and um, you know, it's something that you know, Kentucky, Maryland, just everybody can pretty much agree upon. So I'm curious what you, before we talk a little bit more about these, like individually, you had mentioned earlier about kind of people being hesitant getting into rye. Um, like, what do you think it is? And I, and I will tell you, like I, my very first experience with rye, I was not, just wasn't into it. I didn't care for like the spice, but I do tend to enjoy high rye bourbons. Um, I love Irish whiskey. And I don't know that the crossover between the rye and like an Irish whiskey is necessarily there. Um, but I really, I've begun to like more rye. And I think I tried something that was a very high rye content out of Pennsylvania didn't care for it, went down to like a written house, which is just over that threshold of the 51% um, and kind of eased my way up. And now I find myself liking more, more rye that, that have a higher content, but like you're mentioning how you have the high rye mash bill combined with the one that's barely legal to create that Maryland style sweetness. Um, I think it adds a really nice balance, but just out, out of curiosity, what do you think it is that makes people not really care for the rye? Yeah, it's such a great question, and you know, I guess most most of it's kind of just a little bit of guess for us. But I think there's a few things. One, uh, I think there's a lot of people that are still just newer to whiskey in general. Um, and if you jump over here, this is this is technically a spicier grain, um, and it can catch people off guard. I also think even though rye was the Amer original American whiskey, and it was made for so long, it almost went completely extinct at one point, right? And it, was, if it wasn't for the fact that they used it as a little bit of a blender component, like Crown Royal, and there was a few few like Old Overhold and, and Pikesville, and you know Rittenhouse, like you mentioned, it was, it was borderline ex extinct. Um, so then there's a bunch of people who start making it again. And depending on when you tried it, I always question whether it was a really young one you know was it was it young it just didn't have the right time yet in, in the in the barrel or did they use smaller barrels and, and sometimes that can provide a lot of tannins to it as well it's, it's i can only speculate but i always ask people you know it's not uncommon for me here like i've tried rye i think i'm good and they'll you know they'll say let me guess it's pretty angular it burned it ripped out the back of your throat it just was like just i almost want to say when it's when it's so bold, it, it's like borderline one-dimensional, you know, and we're looking to create something that's balanced and it's got complexity and it's got layers. And I think we, we find it, we see that with the using the two different mash bills, which we like. And it also creates something that is very, what we consider to be approachable because it's just not really angular. Yeah, I think when I try something, that's very rye and maybe maybe that's what it is is the like the youthfulness of a rye or or something some other factor i feel like some of them it almost gives you like a for lack of a better word like a 
effervescent, like spearminty, like feel, you know, in your mouth and not, not the taste of like a mint, but just that feel of like a coolness kind of coming through, which you don't really, I don't really expect. And so I think when you have it, if you're not expecting it after that spice, it's like, Ooh, I don't, I don't know if I love that. <laughs> you know, absolutely. It's a word that I hear occasionally. And I think it's accurate, but it always tends to bother me, but you almost get like this menthol from something. Yeah. And yeah. like, you know, like menthol is not, something people necessarily seek out <laughs> no unless you're unless it's a uh, marlboro and you're in college yeah, exactly right <laughs> it's it. like trying to always associate that with one thing man yeah <laughs> it's not good either <laughs> yeah not something i'm looking for all right but, so let go ahead no i just say but hopefully we can help change that you know <laughs> definitely okay so let's let's talk about this one so this is your kind of your standard right yeah yeah um this okay so 83 proof um first talk a little bit about the bottle like the i think the shape of the bottle is cool and it sticks out and i think that is a part of kind of the buying experience if you see it on a shelf like it's at least going to catch somebody's eye um i think it's cool i really like the bottle um is there anything behind it like in terms of a reason behind like the shape of it design yeah absolutely and I, it, we absolutely you know it's a very unique bottle and, and we know that and it's, it kind of goes back to just to give you a backstory kind of with being a guy not from the industry, which is kind of comical, is when we designed this bottle, we were super proud of it. We're like, this thing's beautiful, just gorgeous. And then you start taking it to glass manufacturers and, and labelers and they're like, and you show them pictures and they're like, wow, that's, that's beautiful. And then they kind of give you this like stink eye, like, you're not from the industry, are you? <laughs> like, I'm not. They're like, you're never going to get a label on that thing. And it's just like, well, we get a label on it every day. Um, and it, it requires a little effort, but it's worth it. So what really kind of inspired us behind this bottle was like, again, the legacies here in Maryland with the, some of the distillers, there was such beautiful glass. Back in the day, if you looked at bottles back in the day, they weren't as boring as ours. They're like really cool. They were like always unique. They had interesting embossing on them. And there's one that really jumped out at us. There's a kind of a really nice, beautiful museum here in, in Baltimore called the Walters Museum. Lots of beautiful art. We'll come to find out Walters made all of his money selling rye whiskey in, in, in the 1800s. And he had a beautiful six-sided bottle um, with embossing down the side, like hand-blown. We just thought that bottle was absolutely gorgeous. And then our farm, which was originally started by the Vanderbilt family in 1925, the jockey silks were these three diamonds that you see on the, the bottle. And so it was kind of a, a nod to the folks in the past and those beautiful bottles they used to make. And then kind of, you know, old meets new. And then it's also a little bit diamond shaped like our logo. And, uh, and of course, you know, there's no front or back to it until we actually put a label on it. So from production standard, makes life pretty easy. You don't have to worry about a front or back until we hit it with a label. So that's kind of the backstory on that. Yeah. I mean, it's beautiful. It's it kind of heavyweight. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's really a nice bottle. I think there's some cool bottles that are out there and there's some other ones that are not so cool. And I think yeah. it's, uh, it definitely adds to it. And I don't care what anybody says, like there's definitely shelf appeal to seeing something like this on the bottle. You at least get curious to take a look at it. Yes, for sure. Uh, so let's, okay. So four to seven years that we said on this one. This one's four to six. Our four to six. Four to seven, but this is four to six years old. Okay. Um, and then what does this, so like the cask strength, for example, what does that come out at? Um, 
in terms of like, not to switch bottles here, but the cast strength, what does that come out at? Um, like in terms of how much does this need to be proofed down to get to that 83 proof? Yeah, good question. So we do a barrel entry proof at 120. And then what we see currently from the barrels coming out of the old Seagram's warehouses, which are big, thick stone warehouses, is we're seeing that we're typically coming out when we exit the barrel between 112 and 115. We've seen the occasional 117, but we're actually going down in proof. Um, and then obviously we proof this down to 83 with a spring water. We've seen now here in Maryland with um, instead of being big stone buildings, we have thin kind of metal sided warehouses and our proof is actually going up. We're coming out of the barrel more like 124, things along those lines. So that's really kind of some interesting things we've learned as far as, you know, rick houses, the different styles and, and the way it affects your whiskey. Do you see, uh, not to skip, but like the, the difference in terms of climate with like Indiana where, where MGP is at and their aging stuff versus, you know, in, in Maryland, um, I mean, they're kind of similar climates, aren't they? You're going to get hot and humid and you're going to get cold and icy and snow. Yeah, so that's exactly our takeaway too. You know, Kentucky, Indiana, Maryland really have very similar weather. You know, our, we'll have a decent winter. We'll get snow. We, we'll be freezing. Um, you know, we'll get hot in the, in, the, in the summer. You know, I mean, 96 plus humidity, whatever. We'll break 100 occasionally. So it is, and then we definitely have that humidity. And we're on water, so we've definitely got the humidity. But what's, that's what we kind of decided was like old, big, thick stone buildings can only get so hot. Mm. And then what we're seeing is our, the, the buildings, we, the rick houses we've built here, the metal siding, and we paint the buildings black and we don't condition them. We're averaging right now in the summer around 125, 127 Fahrenheit on the top rack. Wow. So those things are, I mean, that's it's getting into that wood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the red line on that thing's going to be like right up to the edge. And then, yes. you know, and then it'll bring it back through. So, I mean, it's going as deep in that wood as humanly possible. And obviously, alcohol and um, water evaporate at different temperatures. And so we're seeing the, the water evaporate at a faster rate than the alcohol, unlike in the Seagram's warehouses. So does that give you a fairly decent yield, especially at this 83%, or I'm sorry, 83 proof once you've, once you've proofed it down? Yeah, yeah, no, we're definitely, I mean, if you have, if you have the same angel share, let's say, but the barrel exit proof is, is 114 on one and the other one 124, we just, we just fell into more whiskey. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, talk, talk about some tasting notes. I get one on the finish on this that I absolutely cannot shake. And I'm curious to see if anywhere close to what you get. Yeah. You know, for me, like the palate's always a little bit different for everybody. Um, yes. and you know, people, people don't realize it's like, did you have a, a garlic bee Caesar salad for lunch and you just forgot when's the last time you had a cup of coffee. There's all these things can play a role. In, and so even if you love the whiskey or you, you didn't love the whiskey, it's always worth coming back, especially after some air gets in the bottle for a little bit um, or, or leave it out on the counter, let it oxygenate for a little bit. But for me on this, you know, a lot of the old Maryland rye whiskeys, they're 80 or 86 proof. So we split it down the middle with 83 proof, which again, you don't see many 83 proof whiskeys, so it's a little bit yeah. unique. And then on the nose, I just get a lot of those classic baking spices. I get the, the, a clove. Mm. I get a, a little bit of a nutmeg. And, um, but I also get this like orange citrusy peel um, and a little bit of a little bit of vanilla. And then on the on the palate, and I always like to take a sip. 
acclimate, let it get all around my tongue, take another sip. Um, and again, it's baking spices out of, out of the gate. I got mint, I got cinnamon, um, but I feel to roll over to, um, I pick up a hint of dill, I pick up um, some like dried apricot, um, I get some caramel. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's kind of what I'm experiencing, but again, there's, I don't want to say there's a right or wrong. If someone said sure. something, I'd be like, you can't argue against that. I, yeah, like that, <laughs> I think people feel like it's, uh, like it's flavored and you have to get, you know, xyz it's like no it's different for everybody. i i get i get smoked at the very end with like dark chocolate or cocoa and it, it just sits there and i, lo I that i love it and i had it last night and i was like that's chocolate like that is outstanding so i was i was digging that a lot that's cool i get that a lot which which is interesting that you say that so cash strength is just the cash strength of the signature you're you're trying right now and for me cash strength is this like black pepper, white pepper, dark chocolate mocha. Hmm. Um, and so it's, it's like, it's in there without a doubt, yeah. without a doubt. And that's really cool that you picked up on that. Yeah. That was a big one for me. Like I, and I don't know why like, that I have only had like one other one before where I was like, is that dark chocolate? I mean, Cause you, you know, I try to you know read up and go, okay, what are people getting out of this? And I hear, you know, dark chocolate or cocoa. And I'm like, God, I just don't get it. And so last night was like one of the first times I've ever said, like, that's, that's definitely like a cocoa right there. Yeah. For somebody, a cocoa might end up being a toasted oak mm. um, or, or, uh, or a peppercorn or like, you know, I, I wouldn't, a toffee or, um, I mean, it, it, it just, it's all over the place. You know, someone will say, you know, like I said, a toasted oak and another person will say graham cracker. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those things like, you know, it's not uncommon for, wood to put off kind of those classic you know walnut pecan flavors so if there is if there's a lot of wood in there people experience that but it, you know if you get into toasted oak it, it can be very different than like it's just a charred oak and then you know and there i want people to know there's no there's no wrong way to enjoy it there's no wrong tasting note it's your whiskey and people have to associate it with something they experience once so some people will just start i've had people talk mike and ike's I've had people talk Twizzlers and Twixes, and that's just what they knew or whatever. Right. I was with a guy in, the te in Texas once. He's like, I grew up in a, you know, in a very rural area. Like, we just didn't have a lot of, like, complexity of food or nothing. He's like, he's like, I can tell you all about trees. He's like, but my, my palate's like, he's like, this reminds me of three things. That's it. That's all I knew growing up. And it's just like, it is. Yeah. It's just like, what kind of food? If, ever, if you just kind of eat the same thing regularly and there's nothing wrong with that, it's just kind of, you just can only associate so many flavors with it. It takes a long time. Is this, and this might be a bad, not fair question, but in terms of using the two mash bills, like if you were to take what is in the bottle and excuse me, and like actually look at like what the, what the final mash bill would be, like what kind of rye content would you think, or do you know is, is in the, the bottle itself? Uh, we're, we're, we're up in the upper, we're probably actually, in the upper, we're, we're kind of the, the upper 70s, low 80s. Okay. Wow. So it, it finishes up there pretty good. So the sweetness kind of offsets that 95.5, um, but still is going to be fairly up there. Yeah. And I think people expect uh, to hear a lower number, but mm -hmm. we still obtain what we're trying to achieve. 
but it has a higher rye content. And the reason for that is we kind of go down in proof. And, mm. and so, so we don't completely lose that rye complexity. We, we kind of turn up the rye level a little bit, if you will. Otherwise, it can, it can fade off pretty easily. So, you know, and our double oak, we, we put more of the low mash bill in, right? So we'll, here's, here's where we take down the high mash bill a little bit, play more with that low. And then the, the cash drink, we keep similar to, to signature because we want people to be able to kind of compare and see the difference basically of just what spring water does. And people who typically want a cash drink rye want big and bold. Yeah. I can, I can imagine. Um, all right, let's go to this double oak. Now, now I told you, I don't remember if we were filming yet, but I tried the rye last night and I was like, okay, this is, this is good stuff. Um, so I had to go pick up another bottle today and I wasn't sure what I was going to get. And so I saw the double oak and I think I like the double oak in terms of bourbons, um, really enjoy them, started to like a lot more of them. So I was really curious about how the rye double oak would be. So this is the one I had to go with in terms of uh, trying a second bottle. So I want to get into this a little bit. So tell me a little bit more about the double oak. Yeah. Can you tell me what batch you have on there too? That will help me out a little bit. This is, um, is it, I can't, is that 50? Uh, oh, okay. Five, probably 5A. But no, I can't tell it's five. It looks like 5B or 50. Or 5B. I have 5D. I actually have yeah. 5D. I bet you got 5D. 5D, yeah. We both got 5D. Okay. okay. Perfect. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I couldn't tell if it was 50 or 5D. I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Some of our penmanship isn't as good as others, you know? Right. We'll find, we'll find a negative somewhere. <laughs> you know? Okay. So this one I think is interesting. And you and you, you mentioned it, Tony. Um, I, I'm quietly, uh, I, I, confidentially, I will tell you when I was getting into this and what you know, we didn't have our whiskey. I was drinking as many different whiskeys as I could. There was a certain double oak bourbon out there that is made in Kentucky that I, I'm a big fan of. Maybe it's mm -hmm. maybe it's made by Brown Foreman Company. I can't remember. What we'll say that? <laughs> Without naming no. names. Yeah, and I I was a fan of it. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And, yeah. and one, as I said, you know, I didn't see many double oak rides on the market. And I just thought, I'd love to do that. And so... What we end up doing with this is we'll age our, our two mash bills separately for five years. And after just over five years or so, we'll go ahead and blend them together and we'll put them back into another new American oak barrel. What's interesting about this oak barrel is we cut grooves down the inside of the staves. So the lengths of the staves all the way down, we cut grooves. Gives you about 23 to 25% more surface area for the whiskey and, and to make contact with the wood. And so we call it a, a, a kind of groovy whiskey or a wave stave barrel, you know, and, and then instead of doing a heavy charm, burning off those grooves, we just toast it. And then we do 18 more months inside that barrel. And so this is six and a half year old product. We think rye really peaks nicely around six, seven, uh, between five and seven. I think the color on this is absolutely. I think the same thing. This is super dark. It's incredible. And it's like a, it's like a red amber. That's and, awesome. And, the, and the, the legs and the oils I see on this. And so yeah. the mouthfeel on this is really interesting. Now, we go up to 96.6 .6 proof on this. So definitely more baking spice up on front. Um, you know, almost like a toasted macaroon. Um, I get some 
beautiful caramels out of this, though. Uh, it, like, it reminds me, what something I love to do is, like, the toasted graham crackers and, like, s'mores. S'mores. So we do yeah. s'mores in our backyard. So when we do s'mores, we got a fire pit, the kids are out. It's like, this is my favorite whiskey. Well, it's one of my favorite whiskeys just about any time. But, like, when I'm doing a s'mores, I'm like, Get me the double oak because pairing this with graham cracker, chocolate, and, and marshmallow is sensational. Got to be. I mean, for both of these, the finish on these, there's a, again, like the flavor change to the finishes is phenomenal on both of them. Because there's like, it's, I mean, it, they linger around. Um, it's not overbearing with the proof. Um, but the, the flavor at the end on the finish is outstanding. Like that's, I mean, it's, it tastes like a s'more. Yeah, thank you so much. Like, it's it's totally, like, we think it's really unique, but the color, the mouthfeel, the viscosity, um, and, like, in a blind taste, people will think it's a high-rye bourbon. You know, um, mm -hmm. it's not uncommon, but you just don't see many double oak ryes. And then the toasted barrel um, for another 18 months just gives it some really interesting notes that I, I find to be fun. And I agree, like, that, that, I'm still kind of salivating and almost to the point where it's drying up yeah. the sides of my mouth. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I'm, I'm with you. I love the Woodford double Oak. I think it's outstanding. Um, I will drink that any day. Um, and I, and there's a lot of double Oaks that I really like. Um, but the, the rye, I don't, I have never had a rye double Oak or, or a toasted barrel or what, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, in terms of, you know, other bourbons. Um, but I, the, I don't know if it's the rye, like the spice from the rye that adds to it, but like that finish is so good. Oh, cheers to that. Thank yeah. you. And, and the, the 96 proofs and not, I mean, I don't, I don't know what like the other bourbons are at the, the double Oak or, or toasted barrels, but um, that 96 proof is really nice. Um, yeah. Cause I feel like it was down like in the lower eighties. It might be, it might get kind of sweet. I don't know. I think you kind of lose it. It is. And you know, it's interesting too. Um, this is the fun thing about the lab is like trying everything at every point and a half down, like you start, and you just come down a point and a half, point and a half, and you just start narrowing in a range. And it's like, okay, this one seems to be really great from yeah. 98 to 103. Let's start playing a little bit in that range or whatever it may be. And people say, when's the cash strength version of double O coming out? And I was like, the ops team has told me that it's, they're not, it's, it, it actually thinks it kind of takes away from the experience. And I said, come on, let me try it. Let me hear you and make sure I can speak to it. And I, they handed me uh, a version of it once. It was about 117 proof actually. And man, it just was just heat galore. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it all sudden took away from what I associate double oak. And like you said, these, this wide range of, of, uh, of just tasting notes that you get and this beautiful, finished like it's it's flavorful and bold but it's like palatable and it just it and it's like got a lot going on and just the, the orange zest mm -hmm. different things a little bit of honey it's just i don't know it's cool yeah i mean i i think you you don't want to dole that so much just for the sake of the high proof i mean and, and i know people love high proofs and i i like high proofs too but totally. um you come out with a high proof double oak rye like it's not going to sit on the shelf but for a enjoyment perspective, I do think this is probably in a better, you know, range in terms of the proof than, you know, getting something 115 plus. Yeah. There's, there's products that where that makes perfect sense. And sure. when it does, that's the way we bottle them. 
Um, I don't want to take up your entire day. But t- walk through just a couple of your other um, bottles that you guys are, are offering. Cause I know you got some finishes. Um, you know, what, give me a couple of, uh, an idea of some of the other ones that you guys have out there right now. Absolutely. So um, let's think about what, so we have a, a reserve um, series and it's a, it's a release in the spring. It's a release in the fall. It's always something different kind of shows innovation and, and the versatility of rye whiskey. And the size of the releases can vary, any you know, 400 cases, 800 cases, whatever it may be. But they're kind of when they're they're gone, they're gone. The one that might be out there if you're lucky, remaining from the fall, is one called the Manhattan Finish. And what we did is we took five, uh, excuse me, we took four-year, nine-month-old whiskey, and we sourced bitter barrels, uh, vermouth barrels, and cherry brandy barrels. Put our whiskey in there for another a year and nine months. And finished in those, deconstructed the tasting notes of, that you would get from like the most classic cocktail of all time, the Manhattan, and then basically created a blend of those. It's not a cocktail. It's not like a, a, a finished like Manhattan cocktail. This is a, we bottled it at 103 proof, so it was like very much a rye whiskey with these beautiful complements of like bright cherry, herbaceous, mm. like it's just like baking spices like that one's really fun that one was beautiful double gold in san francisco um if you can find it grab it it was really cool i i thought it was a really bold call by the ops team to go for that um but they went for it and it turned out absolutely amazing i'm super proud of the team for that the one that's out there right now that's always interesting people are kind of like whoa i don't know what to think is is the one that we finished our rye whiskey in extra Nejo tequila barrels. And when they say, whoa, I don't know what to think. When they look at the label, they're like, is that a bad night in college? Whiskey kind of thing, you know, it's just like. <laughs> Some plastic bottles and. <laughs> <laughs> totally, right? And it's just one of those things, it's like, like, no, no, like really great tequila and really great whiskey follow a very similar process. You know, extra Nejo is actually, you know, it's kind of like, is a fairly new concept in the tequila world. And so we took five-year-old rye whiskey and finished in some extra Nejo tequila barrels and had tequila in them for, I think it was over four years. Mm-hmm. And then we rested in those for another nine months, proofed it at 98 proof. I think it's one of the most beautiful whiskeys out there. It got a gold medal in San Francisco. It has this, this, this really beautiful honey, agave, vanilla notes with uh, this like like <clears throat> little bit of pepper spice in there. And it is so easy to drink. There was, um, I think it was the Whiskey Wash that just recently wrote an article about it and talked about how really unique and different it was. And they kind of got to the end. They're like, I know I shouldn't be using this word, but I'm going to use this word to describe this whiskey. It's refreshing. (laughs) You never hear that about whiskey. No. That's like my summer whiskey right now. So like, I'll drink it neat. I'll drink it on the rocks. I'll drink it in a highball with ice and, and soda water and lime on a really hot night. It's, it's fun. It's unique. It's different. We've done one finished in Calvados barrels, um, cognac barrels. It had a cognac in for 30 years. We did a port wine that won world's best rye whiskey in San Francisco in 2019. So it's a fun little line. Keep an eye on it. We've got some fun stuff coming out in the fall. We've got some fun stuff spring 2022 and beyond. Um, you can always sign up to be a whiskey thief on our website. So you'll be the first to know about any special release. Uh, before anybody else um, but it's just a way to kind of have a little bit of fun and, and again show the versatility of rye whiskey so you got the core products the, the signature rye you know the kind of just the original 
rye that we released. It's about 70% of our sales. Our double oak, which we sampled, cash drink, which speaks for itself. And then, you know, we have this reserve line. And then if you ever bump into a retailer or somebody, uh, we do we do barrel picks. And so they'll pick a barrel. And that's all six-year-old, 110-proof rye whiskey. Um, typically retails about 60 bucks. So we try to drive really premium whiskeys, ultra premium whiskeys, but for a small supplier, hopefully you find them fairly priced. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of other ones I'm definitely going to be getting, going back to get, because these are, uh, I mean, we're two for two in terms of liking the ones I've grabbed, the, the one you sent me and then the, the one I went and picked up this morning. So uh, there's a lot of other ones I'm definitely going to have to try out. Awesome. What, what is your uh, distribution? Are you guys, how you know widespread is distribution? And then are you guys direct to consumers from, from you guys or a third party? So there's a few options out there. Good question. So we're in 41 states. Um, you know, some states we have a little bit better presence than the other. Kind of, you know, Boston down through Florida, we have a pretty solid presence. You know, the Chicago's, the Texas, the uh, Colorado's, um, Arizona, uh, you know, California, Washington State, that sort of thing, and, and working into other some markets as well, Indiana, Tennessee, Missouri, and so forth. Um, and then there are definitely a lot of, on, especially COVID, you know, brought so many online retailers, which was cool for us, which really helped a small guy out. And so there's classic, you know, third-party websites that can deliver to almost all states, um, you know, whether it's a reserve bar or caskers or something along those lines. Um, Drizzly, uh, uh, if you're on ground, or GoPuff, something like that. Um, so we use all those, and then we're in a couple of um, countries as well. We're in uh, China, we're in Japan, we're in the UK, uh, Canada, uh, and you know, soon to be a few more in New Zealand. We're in New Zealand as well. So just a few markets where you know we have a, a, a great relationship, and people have a great appreciation for whiskey. So we're so slowly getting out there. We just turned five years old. Um, got a lot of work to still do and, but it's been fun, fun, fun. I bet, man. I mean, that's gotta be, you know, it's always nice when you have a, a job you can go to work and enjoy. And like, I mean, five years being in 41 States is huge. I mean, that's not, that's not an easy thing to do. It's not, I mean, open up States, man. I mean, every state, it's not like, Oh, we're the same as Maryland and no. the same as Tennessee. And no, everyone's like, welcome to our laws and yeah. our reporting. <laughs> And our way we do it and our licensing is just like, okay, got it. Church and state, got it, you know. Kind of thing. Yeah. So, so yeah. It, it works though, you know, and um, it creates revenue in their state. So they want to get it there. But, you know, again, you just got to do it in a compliant way and we're in business long-term. So we, we get it done. For sure. Uh, social media, where's the best place for people to find you guys? Oh, uh, you know, at Sagamore Spirit on Instagram. Uh, uh, we do a little bit of Twitter. Facebook's a great one, obviously. Uh, I don't know. We probably probably need to get our act together someday and look at that TikTok thing. But Instagram seems to be the big one, and, and yeah. Facebook's the big one. And and then, like I said, you go to our website, sagamorespirit.com. Sign up to become a whiskey thief. We won't pester you. We only send out emails when we think there's something valuable to share. Awesome, Brian. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate the bottle you guys sent out. This was uh, this was great. Really appreciate it. Tony, this is huge for a small little brand like ours to come on your show. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Cheers. Of course. I'll make sure to get this out there. Awesome. Thank you. All right, man. Take care.